We can have different core values and all of them be valid. I think I had to own my difference. Don't be scared of disagreeing. That's what democracy is based on. In our previous episode, we enjoyed a conversation with Nisha Anand, the CEO of Dream.org, an organization that's redefining bipartisan efforts in America. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, please do. Because in this episode, we'll be sharing part two of my conversation with Nisha. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Are there any things that you feel like got you here but won't get you there? Where are you pushing yourself to grow today? I think the two that came to mind right away was one, doing it myself. Being a generalist and competent in most areas meant that I can do most things. I might not do it well, but I can get it done and I trust myself and I'm going to do it because, you know, I'm ambitious. You cannot do it yourself when you're this size and want to scale. It seems obvious, but being a great manager and a great delegator is, you know, one of the first steps you learn. But after that, the trust to the staff under you and the ability to hire folks that are smarter better and more capable than you are. You have to be willing to do that. And I've seen so many CEOs that don't want to hire the next person. You have to get over that. So my thought is learn management and delegation, important. Learn to trust your staff, make trust an important part of the culture. Make sure to build it, make sure to not break it, know how to be vulnerable. That Mm -hmm. trust means you can depend on people to Mm -hmm. do the work you say you're going to do. And then the final one is like, hire the best really think about like, don't settle. I think I've, I'm just one of those big hearted people that sees the great in everybody. Most people are great. Not all of them fit here. And mm. I think that's one of the hardest things like doing it myself and, and really making sure I have the best people. Yeah. Those were things that I had to learn. And the other big one that comes up is that early on in my career, I was very much out front, loud, outspoken, giving speeches on big stages at protests. Yeah. And then for the majority of my career, I took the back seat. Mm. And wanted to be the person behind the person and learn how to run everything behind the scenes. CEO of this size company means that I have to step out again. Mm. And I wasn't comfortable with that. There's something that doesn't feel great about being a public figure in that way and having to be a spokesperson. Mm. I've always wanted the cause to be first. I always wanted the issues to be first. But Mm. in terms of running the company and, and getting more people interested in our way of doing the work and getting more people interested in donating to our way of the work means that I have to be more public. Mm. So just being good behind the scenes doesn't, it doesn't yeah. crack it for this size and this scale. You got to be good in front too. How have you figured out how to kind of cross the chasm and begin to build up that confidence? Well, where do you feel you're at in that journey? What pieces of advice might Nisha today have for Nisha kind of two years ago? When I first became CEO, which is coming up on five years, which is just bananas to think about, I knew that this would be a challenge for me. Mm. And one of the things I sought out was who should I learn from? Mm. If I were to only look in the nonprofit sector with groups like mine, I was only going to get so far. Mm. I kind of knew the players. I knew we all go to the same trainings to learn (laughs) the same things. And so I wanted to look completely outside my world. And dream.org, we have this framework of unlikely allies. Find your unlikely ally to make change. 
Mm. I wanted to think of unlikely allies to really push my thinking. Mm. And I joined first this group called Renegade Global. And it's women entrepreneurs supporting like other women entrepreneurs. They also have... So Amy Jo Martin is a phenomenal woman who runs this. She was one of the first people doing branding on social media. She ran uh, Shaquille O'Neal's social media in the early days, The Rock social media. She was doing it for the NBA when when social media first became a thing. So I'm like, let me learn from her. Mm. That is very outside my world. Yeah. So she runs Renegade. And I learned a lot about how to put yourself out on social media. But then she also brought in women investing in companies. And so I actually learned about investing. And now I get to invest with other women. I would have never been an angel investor on my own, but she's been putting together these special purpose vehicles. So all of a sudden I'm learning about branding from women entrepreneurs that are building their companies on Instagram. And I'm learning about investing. Amazing. So joining a group like Renegade was huge. And then I also joined a group called YPO. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Young Presidents Organization. It's CEOs and presidents of companies that are X size. It's global. I think there's like 400 chapters. And in my chapter, I'm one, I'm part of one of the Bay Area chapters. It's like 70 people. I'm the only nonprofit executive. These are people running big businesses, big sizes. And I discovered we have a lot in common. Almost all of the issues that we have are so similar. Personnel issues, money issues, whatever issues are going on, we share and support and help each other. And I also learned the things that they're great at. I don't know anything about, but I also started valuing my knowledge that Mm. I know things and how to do things that they don't. And I didn't really realize that give and take, but how much we need each other. That Mm. as much as I think, you know, this person that's running a public company is like brilliant. Oh my gosh, whatever. They're looking at me being like, You've been arrested how many times? You passed what kind of bills? Like you work with government? That sounds bananas. That we have a lot to learn from each other. And that was beautiful. And so they've been my support group for Mm -hmm. the last, you know, four years. And I honestly, I I mean, I have to thank both of those groups. What is something that you're like, that spending so much time with leaders of publicly traded or private, but like presidents and CEOs in the private sector makes you guys like, oh man, the private sector needs to figure like this leadership thing out that we like figured out in nonprofit like 20 years ago. I think one of the things that people look to us for, which we have a head start on is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That when you're working on issues that impact people that have traditionally been kind of left out and left behind, you're going to have an analysis around racial justice and economic justice that is just common for us and not as common for a lot of these companies. And so what I'm excited about is that most companies have been tackling DEI work and thinking about how to do it. But I think most nonprofits are ahead of the game. We obviously still have every single company is going to have major areas for improvement. The nonprofit sector has its own set of ills around that. But I do think that we're just a step ahead. So I think that's what folks come to us for. I'd say the thing I've noticed that I'd like to go out and say, hey, guys, is probably that piece around vulnerability. Leadership doesn't necessarily mean always being the strongest, most powerful voice and making sure. I think there is a piece of it that's like when you show up to lead, you do have to lead right? Folks are looking at you. But there's also a part of leadership that's human. And being able Mm -hmm. to show the human heart is Mm -hmm. really important. I think it's important in trust. I think it's important in being able to stay connected to why you're in this work in the first place that folks can really learn from too. 
What are three words your team would use to describe your leadership style? They would say collaborative, Mm. which can be both a good and bad thing. I think obviously a lot of people love that their CEO is collaborative and will listen to a lot of opinions. I'd say that some of my leaders will get upset if I change my mind and sway sometimes when I'm too collaborative, when I've heard some perspective, I'm like, actually, guys, I want to walk that back. Obviously, that can cause some amount of chaos and uneasiness, but I think the goods outweigh the bads. And I think most folks would agree. I think they would say bold that Mm. I do take big swings and I do really have a bigger vision and I hold people to that higher vision Mm. and the idea that these big things are possible, that this kind of change can happen. I think that's the good part. But I think the other piece of that is my optimism. They would say I'm also an optimistic leader, which, you know, I've definitely heard the word toxic positivity thrown around in the negative side. But my optimism on the good side is that fierce determination because I've lived here long enough to see change made because we are determined as folks on the social change left that with our determination, it's not naive optimism. It's very practical optimism. If we work and follow this plan, we will see this change. So I have that determination because I know I'm counting on these people around me to do it. And I believe in them as well. If there's one more word that was added to the list over the next five years, what do you hope it is and why? My vision in leading this organization over the next you know, 10 years Mm. is I do want to make a significant impact on the way we solve problems. Mm. I think that just in terms of our common ground philosophy, I think that we really need to make it sexy and exciting to Mm. find common ground, to say that nuance is a great area to live in. I think that dream.org can be the people that bring that out, that show that. And so for me, there'd be a word there that I've done something to put on the national stage, that we can have progress without polarization, that Mm -hmm. we can live in nuance and we can find common ground, that we can bring people together while solving the world's toughest problems, that that's possible. So to my leadership style, I want to say like I showed people how to do that and and really put this way of solving problems on the map. It's not one word. But I also know there's some real practical goals that you have going on. And one of the ones I'm, I'm particularly curious about is the work that you guys are doing in green energy and thinking about diversity on that lens. Could you walk through what is going on? What's the role dream.org is playing and, and what your hopes are there? So when the Inflation Reduction Act passed, $369 billion is being dedicated to infrastructure builds which is going to be green infrastructure builds. With government bureaucracy and government contracts, and everyone is very familiar, and this is very true, that even saying this money's going, well, it is going to go. But where is it going to go is another story. There are a million different parts of the puzzle before the dollar actually hits a local community, whether Mm -hmm. it's a local community or city or state or any level. There's a hundred different things that happen. It could miss the communities on the front lines of climate change completely. Because Mm. who can apply for these funds is usually cities that are really well-funded who have people dedicated to applying to these complicated grants for millions and billions of dollars. They need staff in order to do that. Mm. Also, sometimes the laws aren't written well, so people can take advantage of it 
that not necessarily are the ones we want to see benefiting from it. I think one of the examples was the opportunity zones legislation that passed was the idea that certain communities, you could receive credits and a lot of support if you were building communities that needed development. So putting grocery stores in communities that had been food deserts would have been a great idea of opportunity zones. And you get some benefit if you did that. But instead, the way it was written was that big giant developers from out of state or the biggest ones who could compete for government contracts, got the contracts and built things that weren't really with that intention. Mm -hmm. And so Green for All is looking at this money and thinking, how do we play on both sides? How do we write? And I have a lot of policy nerds on my team. We have an office in DC that is, this is what they do. How do we make sure as these rules are being written, they include our equity goals? Mm -hmm. And there's a Justice 40 set of goals around how are we going to make sure this hits the communities that need it most? So while we're writing the rules... We're also going deep into some of the communities that we've worked in before and putting together our unlikely ally coalitions. So partners on the front lines, as well as local banks in the area to come together and city officials to compete for those funds and help them actually apply because they will not be able to without Mm -hmm. some help. And Mm so on both of those levels, we hope to impact billions of dollars of that. You know, we did actually help write the rules for the greenhouse gas reduction fund, one of the first tranches of this money to come out. And that impacted $60 billion is now designated for communities of color and Mm -hmm. communities that are most severely impacted by climate change that wouldn't have happened without someone at the table. And so it becomes really like hard policy-wise to explain what we're doing, but the impact to say we could move X dollars into those communities are important. And the other thing that's a big piece of that is who are the entrepreneurs in those communities that actually won't just be solving a climate problem, but could also be solving an employment problem. And so Mm -hmm. when we look at Black entrepreneurs and we look at companies led by Black CEOs and Black founders, we know they employ more Black people. This is how it is. And so if we want to look at how do we solve poverty and pollution at the same time, We want to try to find all of those entrepreneurs that are doing big things might not be at the big enough level to even be able to apply for the government contract. Mm Dream.org itself can apply. We've been putting together coalitions of these businesses and they've been applying. And that our dream entrepreneur network is one of the big ways in which I think that folks can get involved with us and really help make sure those dollars go to the businesses and the communities that are going to yeah, solve poverty and pollution at the same time. Oh, I love that. Is there like an example that comes to mind of like a business that you are excited about that you guys connected with or worked with in the green space? Yeah, absolutely. Some of them are competing right now for some of the government funds, but our first, it was called the Black, maybe it was called the Black Green CEO Roundtable. I can't remember our original name. We've just converted it to the Dream Entrepreneurs Network. But it was nine CEOs of green tech companies. Two Mm. of them were former rocket scientists, Mm. which, you know, I like to explain when folks are like, oh, there aren't CEOs out there. There aren't companies out there. I'm like, there are plenty. You Mm. just haven't heard about them. And Mm. one of our companies designed a solar panel. It's like this big that competes with the major solar panels on the market. And the story is unbelievable on how he developed this was about being a young black boy and having four horrible school photos because of the photography. He Mm. learned something, which I can't even explain because this isn't my area of expertise. He discovered something in changing how photography was done at a young, young age that Mm. helped him completely transform how solar panels are made. So he has the most energy efficient solar panel out there. Mm. It only could have been developed because of him and what he went through. 
And it's not getting into compete with the big solar contracts because the company isn't big enough yet. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of great companies out there that are doing interesting things around EV infrastructure, around all types of green building. We actually ran a incubator in partnership with Village Capital and looked for some of these startups that we could support through an incubator. And then we brought them to Verge, one of the big green tech business kind of trade show conferences and pitched on the stage. Every single one of those companies, mind blown of what they had thought of because of where they come from. I'd say of the 10 of them, I could see eight of the 10 of them being the next big thing. I'd fully support them with every dollar I could. I think that they're on the right track. And so I just think folks don't know where to look to find the entrepreneurs. And we want to shine a light and say they're here and they're building things that are going to save the world. Definitely under green.org, you can find out about those climate tech companies. We ran another incubator with Village Capital around justice tech. For me in Silicon Valley, loves to disrupt broken industries and there's no industry as broken as the criminal justice system. And Mm -hmm. so we wanted to see what was out there in terms of disrupting mass incarceration. Were there ideas that could actually change how we do this? And so we did a year-long program with an incubator and accelerator with Village Capital. And then we ran a $1 million Justice Innovation Prize Mm -hmm. to see what was out there. A few months ago at SOCAP, we gave away three different prizes. So mm-hmm. 250 each to, yeah. to the top ideas out there. But yeah, there's a lot going on, I think, in social impact investing that is worth looking at. And I'm happy to connect you with some of these folks. I want to think about three people. I want to think about Nisha, who is refusing to make her bedroom. I want to think about Nisha, who's getting arrested. And then I want to think about Nisha first accepting the role of CEO at dream.org. What would be your advice to each of those people? I think that it was necessary to be all of those people in order to be where I'm at now. One thing that's never changed is wanting, you know, just this like young kid who wanted to make the world a better place. Mm. That misfit who never kind of fit in anywhere and saw people that, you know, were picked on and bullied and that's not happened to anyone else. That's been with me this whole time. I've always wanted to make a difference and always wanted to make change. I somehow knew that was the life I was going to lead from a young age. That stayed the same. How to pursue it, how to be the most effective and most impactful. I didn't learn that until much later. And so I think that every part of the movements for change have a place in changing the conversation. Being loud and on the street is necessary to shift what's possible. It's important for awareness. It is important to bring people in. That is an important stage of development and it's necessary. You will not find any movement across the world globally that doesn't have that as a piece of it. So Mm. even though I'm not always on the front lines anymore, on the street or locking myself to buildings and things anymore, I still value it and think it's really important. Mm. What I found now in this probably I wouldn't have known is that there are less people willing to do what I'm doing now, which is going into these places of power, these places where I thought weren't interested in change and demanding change. I think of it somewhat like as a redistribution of of power, that power is important. I used to think that, you know, we're here to fight the power, right? That's a uh, yeah. I'm like, actually, what if we want to be the power? What mm-hmm. if the visionaries and folks who had a vision for our future had the power? Would we create something different? Mm-hmm. And that's what I can see with entrepreneurs. I mean, I'm lucky to be living here in Silicon Valley where I can see there are brilliant people 
have an idea for the future to bring bring out in the world. And so I guess my young self, and there was one lesson that I learned when um, I was locked in the center of the Three Ring Circus protesting animal cruelty at, at Ringling Brothers. I was locked there with a bunch of other people I trained with. I looked around everyone who came out for the circus that night and thought, I've just ruined a ton of children's night out. They might have been looking forward to this forever. They have no idea about animal cruelty. Am yeah. I actually going to change anything in this moment? I had a, you know, I had a crisis where I had to really think about, is this tactic the right tactic for this moment? Mm. And it definitely led some doubts for me in thinking mm -hmm. about it. And then fast forward a few years after that, I was arrested in the military dictatorship of Myanmar and mm. I was sentenced to five years of hard labor. This was in 1998. And I was with 18 other international activists. And back then, any cause that was important and righteous, and I looked at it and I thought, this is important, I was going to be down for. The pursuit of democracy and the military dictatorship of Myanmar is one of those important struggles that my heart went out to. I don't think I fully understood how fragile democracy can be until lately in the US. But mm -hmm. when I went there... And I saw what the military dictatorship can do to just your regular everyday democratic rights. Mm -hmm. In 1988, right after one of the first democratic elections since colonialism and, oh. you know, occupation in 88, the National League for Democracy won the election overwhelmingly and the military staged another coup and took over. And about 10,000 students tried to ri raise up, rise up. Yeah. Um, about 10,000 were killed. Everyone else fled or was imprisoned. They decided to shut down schools for the next 10 years, lock up all the leaders of the Democratic Party. It's an isolationist country. There was nothing allowed inside the country in terms of newspapers or any information from the outside that wasn't approved by the government. It was a horrible place. And I went in and I risked arrest and yeah, was sentenced to, to five years. Yeah. In jail. And coming home, this was one of those moments that I think was a big turning point moment for me mm. is we were with people from eight different countries. So they had a lot of their diplomats and officials come and also put pressure on the government to release us. But from the United States, one congressman, Representative Chris Smith, he's mm. a Republican from New Jersey. He's still serving in Congress. He flew out to Myanmar to get us out. And I thought this whole plane ride back that I was going to share with him back to the US, I was going to tell him about all of these things that I disagreed with him on. And, you know, I was going to debate him because I was captain of the debate team. I was a big debate nerd. I love talking about politics. Yeah. I thought that that ride would, I'd change his mind about all sorts of things. I was going to speak truth to power. Mm. But what ended up happening was we found a lot of common ground. He was the head of the Human Rights Commission at that point. That's why he came there to get us out. And and we actually talked about the areas of agreement and found out we had a lot in common. Mm. And I don't think I observed it then, but mm. looking back on it, it really impacted me mm. that there are people everywhere who you have stuff in common with that want to work with you, that want to make a change. Mm. Even in Republican Congress, but as well as people in these big corporations who I thought were my enemy or people here or there anywhere, there are so many people that mm -hmm. want to do things with you. You just have to be open to it. So that was another big turning point moment from those young years that wouldn't have gotten to me now. I think that my advice would be, be open to it, do it bold and learn, yeah. constantly be learning.
One of my favorite parts of Venture Visionaries is our recurring spoken story segment, where we get to hear from the people who make up the organizations that we're talking about. This week, I got to speak with a few folks at dream.org, and I had one question. What was the secret behind dream.org's incredible success in bipartisan legislation, injustice, the environment, and economic opportunity? I got to talk to Jacqueline Omatalade, their Climate Investments Director, Catherine Young, their Director of Development, and Janos Martin, their Chief Advocacy Officer. Here's what each of them had to say. Dream.org's work is so impactful because we center communities and community voices in everything we do. Specifically, my work, the climate investment work, looks at what communities want and need as we transition to this new green economy and works to advocate to uplift and center their voices to drive projects that create lasting change in those communities. What makes Dream.org special? We seek out those who have lived through the problems we're trying to address, like those who are formerly incarcerated or from communities on the front lines of pollution, and put them in the driver's seat. We provide them training, resources, and access to our networks, ensuring their experiences are heard and respected as decisions are being made. It is only through uplifting their voices that we can ensure that policy solutions bring healing to communities instead of more harm. There's two pillars that guide Dream.org's work and our values, and it's what makes us impactful. The first is that we center directly impacted communities. That means training up the next generation of leaders so they can be more effective working in their communities. Second, we work in a common ground way. That means that we're willing to work with partners who might think differently than us on a number of issues as long as we can work together for the greater good. And that's ultimately going to be how we solve our country's biggest problems. Now, my conversation with Nisha was incredibly inspiring. That in and of itself is not unique. I find every guest we have on Venture Visionaries deeply inspiring, and I'm always left with new things to think about and new ways of being. But what was unique about my conversation with Nisha is I felt that it gave me something that I felt like I'm in much need of, when I think about the political climate in the United States today, and that was hope. I, like so many of us, have felt bogged down with a political system that seems deeply stuck, national challenges that seem immovable, and a deep sense of frustration that while we all recognize that where we are is a real mess, we can't seem to do anything or agree on anything to make it better. And Nisha's conversation reminded me that that's just not the whole story. That there are so many people, despite what the news might show us, who are working on hopeful things across lines of division that the media might have us believe are impossible to bridge. And it left me inspired to stop sitting back and complaining so much and figure out how I can be a bridge builder in my own community. And what are the things I might be able to work on? 2024, for those listeners in the United States, is an election year. And no matter your politics, your voice is deeply needed at this time in this country. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired to not just get activated to do something, but perhaps reach out across your community and do something with someone you might otherwise not have. That is, after all, the only way we truly move forward. 
I'm Thomas Igeme. This is Venture Visionaries. I'll see you next week.